Life was filled with guns and war Everyone got trampled on the floor I wish we'd all been ready Children died, the days grew cold A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold I wish we'd all been ready There's no time to change your mind The sun has come and you've been left behind Well, welcome to Rector's Cupboard Special Series 2020, a horrible year. Maybe put a question mark after that. How did we get here? This three-part series will conclude with a conversation with Dr. Willie Jennings of Yale Divinity School. We'll speak with Dr. Jennings about the link between Christianity and white supremacy. In an article in Christian Century, Dr. Jennings speaks about being caught up in faith, a powerful, mystic, religious experience. He then speaks about the sometimes discouraging things that he could see in communities of faith. I feel and have felt caught up. I'm so grateful for my faith, for a sense of the transcendent, for faith in Jesus Christ, in whom, in my Christian understanding, will be the renewal of all things. I'm grateful for those who have taught and led me, for those who have been part of communities of faith in which I have lived and grown and worked. However, as I have lived and grown, and worked, I've become aware that not everything in those faith communities had to do with Jesus. There was politics and power and fear. At times, Christian faith, as I have seen it, has been sexist and racist and homophobic, xenophobic. I never ever thought that such ways were the way of Jesus, and I don't think so now. It's just that now, after over 25 years of being a pastor and after a lot of education and learning and even prayer, I've come to see where some of the sexism and racism and homophobia and xenophobia have come from. Today we're going to speak with Matthew Avery Sutton about his book called American Apocalypse, A History of Modern Evangelicalism. The book details how churches like the ones I attended came to exist. Sutton helps us to see where concepts such as the rapture came from. He speaks of the incessant focus on end times, that Jesus is coming soon, always soon. Ways of seeing things that colored so much of this brand of faith and how they saw the world. Sutton leads the reader from the dawn of the 20th century all the way to the 21st century in American fundamentalist evangelical history. If you grew up in an evangelical church, you will hear things that are familiar. Names, interpretations. Our hope is that you will see that evangelicalism is one expression of the Christian faith, but it's not the only one, as it often has been characterized by its proponents. If you didn't grow up in an evangelical church, you'll gain an awareness of how one interpretation of faith and scripture came to dominate a religion. You'll see how that particular interpretation often overwhelmed what we would consider to be better, more compassionate ways of understanding. I've always thought that it's a giveaway of the weakness, not the strength of a belief system, to say that you must think and believe just like I do, or else. The men, mostly men, who led and guided the rise of evangelicalism can come across as angry, fearful, and controlling, and I think that at times they probably were. I also think that the motivation of people who insisted on fundamentalist interpretation may not always have been questionable. I knew in the evangelical church growing up countless people of love and compassion. Is there such a thing as the rapture, or will there be? What happens to people 
who don't believe when they die? What should our stance be on homosexuality? What does it mean to stand up for life? Are Catholics Christians? Is it okay for a woman to preach a sermon? Is secular music okay? What does it mean to remain pure sexually? My responses to these questions, actually even that these questions would be asked is interesting to me now, but my responses are in every case different than the people who taught me intended that they should be. They might think me to be a heretic. I think that I'm a Christian. I really do suggest reading Matthew Avery Sutton's book. My answers to the questions above were potentially heretical to some evangelicals long before I read this book. But the book solidified that I didn't have to feel like I was walking outside of acceptability. These men who shaped evangelicalism as I experienced it were often wrong. In fact, being wrong was one of their most consistent traits. We can say so now, as if we were speaking to them. You were wrong to say that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, today, or the next day. You were wrong to say that the person who believed differently than me was a danger to me. You were wrong to say that there was only one way to understand sexuality. You were wrong to tell me to throw out my secular music. I'm still upset about that one. Who did you think you were to tell me and all of my friends to throw out something that we'd spent good money on? Something that was part of working out our sense of self, our identity in the world. I don't blame you, my teachers. You were simply part of a longer story. I'm grateful for you, for your love and concern and much of what you offered me. And I still hold much of what you offered me, but I don't have to keep everything. There are some things worth throwing out. In 1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the Rector's Cupboard. Order! So, welcome to Rector's Cupboard. This is a special spring to summer mini-series. This is part one of that, and we're really glad to welcome today Matthew Avery Sutton, author of the book American Apocalypse, and we'll be speaking with uh, Matt in just a few minutes. But first, we want to welcome our cupboard master, Ken Bell, Morning, Ken. Good morning. How is everyone? Fantastic. We're pleased, mostly, to be tasting um, at about <laughs> you know ten thirty in the morning. But you know, take one for the team, right? Yeah, it's not the earliest. I, I don't think we've had uh, a tasting, but it's pretty close. So, uh, just by way of for those who are familiar with uh, our podcast, you know that usually we have this tasting component, and we uh, are usually with our guests in person. We try something. Uh, during this COVID time, we've sort of uh, experimented with pre-recording this session. Uh, but what we're trying to do is begin to experiment with having uh, our guests also be able to participate. Unfortunately, Matt wasn't able to get anything to participate with us today. But we're we are doing this live, and Matt, so you're someone's watching us drink at ten thirty in the morning. <laughs> That's not strange yeah, at all. I'll look at you jealously. Yes. <laughs> um, I don't know. And it's so today, iced tea ale. But anyway, keep going. Yeah. Today we are going to try uh, a beer from Beer Brewery. Uh, the name of the the name of the company is B E 
E-R-E. It's actually the person's last name. A father and son opened this in 2017 uh, here uh, on the North Shore, right down by the uh, waterfront. And the one we're choosing to have, I just saw it this week, is uh, Lemon Iced Tea Pale Ale. Now, this intrigued me. Oh, there we go. Super this intrigued me for, for one main reason. I remember oh, when I was yeah, younger, perhaps around grade 12, uh, during lunch breaks, we'd go over to my uh, house, uh, my friends and I, before, uh, before the afternoon school session started. And beer and iced tea was a regular combination. And people laughed at us when we initially thought of it uh, or sampled it. But when I saw lemon iced tea, it threw me back to grade 12 days. Could so I was rich. intrigued by it. Allison and Todd, hmm. you've both so tried it. So we can it. taste it now? Yeah. I, I don't taste yeah, go too ahead. much what do you think? tea. Like I, I definitely taste like the citrusy part of it, like the lemony part. But I don't think I would have identified that it was like an iced tea. It's a bit Rattler-like. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very lovely, like it, summerish. Like, I like grapefruit Rattlers. I'm not so much into the lemon Rattlers, but this would... It's nice. Uh, yeah, mm. this would be good. I like it, Ken. Yeah, it's a... Thank you. It's a bit of a hazy... It's a hazy pale ale. Um, there's, a, there's a subtleness of the tea in there. But yeah, it's nice, refreshing. It's a good summer drink. It's called Heck Yeah, uh, which oh, is yeah. also another great name for... For, for a beer. So if you are in the North Vancouver area, you're looking for a different beer, uh, Beer Brewery is uh, a great one to try. Uh, Matt, what's your favorite kind of beer? Do you have a preference? Dark, IPAs? What do you, what do you like? I like um, lagers and um, I don't love the IPAs, which puts me in the minority, but I did want to jump in, you know, when you said you were drinking beers in 12th grade. This will help set up our discussion later. I was reading Bible commentaries. Not reading <laughs> I, I grew up as an uh, Anglican, so that kind of explains that, that part of it. Fantastic. That was part, part and parcel. Uh, I'm not a huge IPA fan either, uh, which Todd I agree. Is. It, it yeah, makes yeah. Some, no. some places you go a bit of a challenge. Anyways, uh, Thank you, for Ken. those of us who are enjoying the beer right now, like it now, Matt, you... Uh, We'll be able to have the gift of beer a little later on today when you're when you're done. So enjoy that, and I'll look forward to uh, listening to this conversation now. Thanks, Ken. Ken, thank you so much thank for you, doing Ken. this, delivering it, and such. And uh, glad you're listening in. So, all right. Well, welcome, Matt. We're we're so grateful that you're here. I don't know how I found your book. I, I kind of hate to say that. I I think I may have. Been I remember reading, when you found it. Yeah, because I I think I may have been reading an article in. I don't know, some magazine, Atlantic or somewhere, or, or was it by something on Amazon and it says you might like this? But I remember, I think it must have been in a magazine where, where the publisher or something was advertising it, right? And you get these pages where, and I, yeah. saw, I saw the title and the cover. And I was like, I have to get that book. And then when it came, I'm so glad I got the actual like, um, soft cover copy because it's a beautiful, beautiful book with the best cover ever. Can you tell us a little story about the cover or how you got this? Yeah, so the cover is just a, it's a cartoonish picture of the rapture. Um, so there's people floating up to heaven and then death and destruction all around it. There's like an upside down school bus. There's melting buildings. Um, there's do, the do you have it on your wall? Are you turning and looking at it on your wall? Yeah, actually, I'm looking. I do have a... a oh, my gosh. Yeah, my wife He's so jealous. Now I'm jealous. I'm coveting, which is another terrible thing because I want that print. Anyway, keep going. So um, when, we were, you know, when I was getting close to the end of the finishing the book, 
I was just Googling rapture images and there's, you know, there's millions of them. And this was just a deep dive on Google. Somehow I stumbled across this. It was painted by an artist. Who, actually, I think he's Canadian. I should have looked yeah, that Ryan Hesch, He is Canadian. He's from Winnipeg. Yeah. So, um, so he had painted this in the late nineties or early two thousands. And so it was just a matter of tracking him down and getting the permission to use it. Um, and we were able to do that, but yeah, I was, I was thrilled to get the rights to use that. Yeah. It's so good. It's so good. I, I, I recommend the book for a whole bunch of reasons, but that alone is, is, is one of them. So, all right. Well, I, I want you to, if you can tell us about the book, like what drew your interest in researching it? Cause there's a ton of research obviously and in writing it and maybe uh, through that, what about the contemporary political and religious scene do you feel makes the book uh, particularly relevant? Cause I, I find it, we find it extremely relevant for yeah. this time. So tell us about how you, how you wrote it in the first place. Sure. So um, I, I wrote a book. My first book was on Amy Semple McPherson, actually another Canadian who went to Los Angeles in the 1910s and 1920s and started a revival ministry. And, that book was focused on her, but she, um, one of the kind of core parts of her ministry was the idea that Jesus was coming soon. And so she had this thing she called the gospel car that said, Jesus is coming. Are you ready? And it just really struck, struck me as important that, um, that this was part of what helped explain the growth of her ministry was this kind of sense that, that people needed to be aware that Jesus might be returning at any moment. So I wanted to pursue that theme more fully, um, and look at not look at it not just through one person's life or one ministry, but through evangelicalism as a whole. And so that's what I ended up pursuing for this book, American Apocalypse. And so it was um, you know seven or eight years of work to try to really understand how important apocalypticism was to the to the rise and growth of American evangelicalism. Um, the other part of it, the kind of more practical part, was. Um, I started this in 2008. The Amy book came out in 2007. So I would have started researching for this around 2007, 2008, which would have been during the presidential campaign, Barack mm-hmm. Obama. Right. Mm-hmm. And I remember the debates about um, what becomes Obamacare, but about having some kind of national system of health care. And it just stunned me because I, I understood the religious right. I had been studying the religious right. I, I could see where they came to their positions on gay rights or on abortion, but I couldn't understand why they were anti national health care. Like what is it about being an evangelical that says you should oppose government run health care? Yeah. And so the further I got into that, I realized it's because it's, it's not really about health care. It's about the state right. that they believed anything that the federal government did was a threat to their liberties and their freedoms and their opportunities and was leading us towards ultimately losing American sovereignty in the kind of the coming one world government. And so that was the, that was the kind of, smaller practical question that drove this book was like why do evangelicals yeah. hate the state why do they hate the federal government and mm-hmm. so that so it's a 300 page or 400 page answer to that question <laughs> well 300 and then a lot of notes right oh yes um no. now do you think that there's a lot of people that are within the current evangelical culture who actually know this history in any way because as someone who comes from an evangelical background this was very eye-opening for me. And on, on Zoom, he nodded his head no. Yeah. <laughs> and I was going to answer. I just want to cut. Yeah. Yeah. So no, they don't. And that's that was one of the funnest things about writing this book is that um, that it actually got to my surprise. It got really good reviews from folks who believe in this rapture theology, and we, we mm-hmm. can go into the weeds and talk about premillennialists or dispensationalists, or we can stay out of those weeds. But people who I thought who I was most directly writing about 
tended to like the book the most. Really? Um, because they realized, and it was for them important to see, uh, well, I guess in some ways I think maybe it was like reducing their anxiety, that once you realize that every generation thinks this is the generation that's going to experience the rapture yeah. and the apocalypse and the battle of Armageddon, you can sleep a little bit easier at night um, because you, you know that, man, that World War I generation was sure that early 1930s Great Depression generation was sure. World War II generation was sure. They the were, they atomic were entirely war, sure. Cold yeah. War were sure. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, what, Todd? Uh, the, well, World War II, the chapter you have there, I think if I was living at that time and you were given to this kind of thinking at all, you would have been utterly convinced that this was it. And then you do such a nice job of making that turn after that, that uh, – you know, when when the war is over and there's some historical events, uh, they're they're confronted with okay, that wasn't it. Um, but right. during that time, I mean, they were utterly convinced. Sorry, keep going. Yeah, no, I say, when I, you're, no, you're exactly right. When I give public lectures about this stuff, I sort of stop in the fall of 1939 when I'm kind of explaining this trajectory, and I'm like, if we stop time right here, they had these evangelicals had a better sense on history the past, the present, and the future than any other groups of Americans. And they understood what was happening. They were aware of what Hitler was doing. They were watching Mussolini carefully. They were concerned about the growing threat in Japan. Um, they, they, you know, really had their fingers on the pulse of global events. But obviously then once the war begins for in Europe and then for the U.S., um, it unravels and doesn't, doesn't work out the way they expect. But, mm-hmm. but they almost had it right, and then everything changes. That you, one of the things, one of the themes that comes out in your book, we'll talk about some others later, but is, and you, you kind of tip your hat to it right here, is the totalizing nature of this kind of belief that, that every single world event was um, interpreted in light of this, of this way of thinking, right? Um, how did that, when, when you're researching this in, in your own personal background and stuff, um, how does that help with some of that freedom to, to think, to think, okay, oh, these guys were taking like everything that was happening and they were putting it through one assumption. They were right about, you know, the big thing. And so then everything gets interpreted in this. How, how did you kind of personally interact with that way of thinking? Yeah, no, and I think that's part of the, the genius for evangelicals themselves, but also, you know, becomes a problem when you see it over 150 years, is that, you know, what Daniel and Ezekiel, and Jesus says in Matthew 25, and Revelation, what all these books say about end times or apocalypse, or what they see as the end times and the apocalypse, it's so vague and so amorphous that you're able to really apply it to almost any situation. And, mm-hmm. and that's one of the things I show in the book is that, you know, the the person who you think is going to be the Antichrist in the 1930s, they're sure it's Mussolini, and it really does look like Mussolini. They really think it's yeah. going to be a revised Roman Empire. Yeah, you have that couple and that goes once, to visit him, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a missionary couple that goes to see him and actually gets an audience with him, gets a meeting, and they ask him like, "Do you know that you're the predicted antichrist?" And Mussolini <laughs> kind of leans back and thinks about this, and then he gets really excited because yeah, he thinks maybe he's the antichrist. Yeah, that'd be great for him. Yeah. But I mean, you yeah, even exactly. see you see contemporary examples of this, like the the church I grew up in. I remember one Sunday, our pastor. Uh, he'd just taken a flight somewhere and he was talking about how he wasn't able to use cash to buy headphones on the airplane and how that was a sign of the end times. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so you right. can put this framework on anything. Like, it, it seems like, yeah. yeah, like what you're saying, it's vague enough that you can interpret almost any world event. So he's sitting, in light of this. He's sitting on yes. the plane. And I'm not, yeah, I'm not I don't I know, know this man. I don't have any, but he's sitting on the plane. <laughs> 
he can't pay cash to get headphones. And kind of the first place he goes is, oh, this is it, man. This is like one of the signs. Wasn't the only time he said stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. You have it on. Welcome uh, to my background. On, in, in my book, page 226. Um, this is one of the succinct ways that you put it. Uh, for a fundamentalist to acknowledge even privately that he could not put a major geopolitical event into a prophetic context was a rare thing. And that comes out really, really clearly in the book. And I guess the key of that being Jesus is coming. I love that you have images in the book as well of some of these magazines. Oh, they're so good. Yeah, that played a key part in this movement, right? And, And that has... And and one of them early is uh, it, it's got a key unlocking a lock and the lock is 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 locking up scripture it's locking up the Bible and the key is going in and they, and they were always so on the nose like they literally said you know the key would have a you know oh it had like Jesus is yeah. coming and then it's yeah. locking like yeah. the other thing is it didn't make sense as it locked I noticed that I was like but you can't lock a book like that but everything was interpreted <laughs> in Jesus is coming again soon which they were wrong about. Correct. Right. Right. And so they're very careful not to, not to set dates. And so they, they always recognize, you know, they're not one of these groups that gives us a date and, and then can be wrong. It's always, you know, Jesus is always around this corner or the next corner after yeah. that. And so, you know, one of the ways to see this is Billy Graham's ministry. Yeah. You know, his first major revival in 1949, he's saying, we've got six months, Jesus is coming back. And then one of his last revivals in you know, the early 2010s, he's saying the same thing. And over a 60-year period, he was always saying it's wow. going to be in the next year or two. Um, and I don't, I don't think it was disingenuous. Yeah. I think they really believe that. How, how but that's do you... part of what I think explains the growth of evangelicalism is that it keeps people always on the edges uh... of their seats because they've got to act and they've got to act now because you just never know. Because one of these turns, they're going to get it right, and sure. Jesus is going to come back, and they need to make sure that they're ready. Well, you feel like there's an inevitability that sometime they're going to be right. The world will end at one point. But you, you kind of wonder how, and I, I think that you, you're completely accurate in that there does seem to be a very true like a sincerity that they have, but I don't know how you live with that kind of almost like dissonance in in going, it's going to be six months, and then six months comes, and nothing happens. And you spend well, 50 years or 60 years of your life saying that. And how you keep truly believing that is, it, it's very interesting it, psychologically. Because <laughs> as, as I was a pastor for 25 years, and, and uh, not as much, it was waning a little bit, but I got, you know, people would come and say, you don't, you don't speak enough about the end times or about Jesus coming back or about, and it is interesting to think like people were saying that to me 20 years ago, right? Like you better speak about that because it's going to happen really soon. And if you don't tell people, right. And it, you know, and these are well-meaning people, but, but they were walking up to me 20 years ago with the sense of like, if you don't do this, you know, next Tuesday, people are going to be really in, in a, in a bad spot. Right. And so if you could tell us a little bit, maybe for those listening as well, because it's a key, key point in our concept in the book. Um, briefly, like not a, you know, we could have a theological class as well, but what premillennialism means. Yeah, so essentially, you know, almost all Christians believe sooner or later God is going to restore the earth. We're going to kind of return to sort of a Garden of Eden state where there's going to be, you know, purity and love and peace and everybody's going to get along. There's not going to be any sin. So the question is, what is going to precede that? Like, how do we get from where we are today to that point, to the millennium? And so there have been competing traditions in church history. 
But the one that evangelicals embrace is that we're going to have this great cataclysmic event that the world is going to be destroyed through the Battle of Armageddon, and then we're going to have the millennium, where more social gospel-leaning liberals think we're actually going to achieve that millennium ourselves, that, mm. that the world is getting better, that we're building a better place, mm. and that the more we do for like social reform and for social justice, the closer we're going to get to that millennium. And so they're very different views of time in what's happening. One is optimistic and hopeful, which is the, the liberals who think we can make the world a better place, and one is pessimistic and believes all of our efforts are going to be in vain, that, that what we're moving towards is apocalypse. And that's the premillennialist view, which is the evangelical view. And Most it, evangelicals, not all, but but the vast, vast majority. And the I, I have it in my list of questions somewhere, but I, the the concept that early on, at least it seems like this to me, and maybe you can kind of give us a brief synopsis, uh, synopsis of your book uh, after I ask this question or, or from this question. It seemed to me in reading your book that in the early 1900s, this movement was kind of a fringe movement that it wasn't really taken that seriously. And there are other, there are kind of times where that comes around again after the Scopes monkey trial or the kind of, but, but one of the key momentum pieces in this book that I pick up is that you're showing us how this thing that was fringe became really mainstream and then very influential to get us to where we are today, particularly in, in the religious landscape in the United States. So this thing that was kind of, on the outside uh, started, and then with particular strategy, technology, education, starting their own Bible institutes and such, these magazines, um, they became more mainstream. Uh, so maybe just with that, walk us through a little bit of some of those, the key historical turnings in that. Like yeah. you've got, you know, pre-World War One and then World War One and on. Let us know about that. Yeah, no, that's... That's a great summary. That's that's exactly right. That there's sort of two things happening at once. One is the ideological side, that they're offering a gospel, they're offering a message that resonates with people in a way that um, is really attractive. That that 20th century has been a difficult century in terms of the you know the death, the destruction, the world wars, the chaos, nuclear you know the potential to have nuclear Armageddon. And so here are people who can step forward and explain it to us mm. and say, this is why these things are happening. This is why the world around you seems so disjointed, so chaotic, so troubled. And not only that, but if you embrace what we're offering, you're going to come out as the winner. Like you're going to be victorious. You're the one who's going to escape this horror. And so there's, you know, there's an attractiveness to that message. Hmm. The other part of that though, then is the kind of, nuts and bolts, how did they make this happen? And so it starts off right. through these inexpensive newspapers and magazines in the late 19th century that they're circulating. And these are not, you know, it's not an independent movement. These are Methodists, they're Baptists, they're Presbyterians, they're Congregationalists. They're people in the main denominations, but they're just working together, having prophecy conferences. And so they would meet during the summer together to talk about Bible prophecy, but then still go back and worship in their regular Presbyterian church or Baptist church or Methodist mm -hmm. church. Then we jump forward to, you know, the new technological innovation of radio, and they became extraordinarily good at using new technologies, and in, in they are to this day, to help spread this message. And so that sort of helped accelerate the transmission of this message. Um, at the same time happening with that is they recognized if Jesus is coming back at any moment, you don't need a liberal arts education. You don't need to go get a degree in history or English or anything else. You just need to understand how to preach the gospel. And so they start building these Bible institutes all over the country. And many of them are still around today, but today they're right. accredited universities, right. Christian colleges. But these Bible institutes train people. And so they're, they're sort of 
putting out this army of workers who can go out into the cities to spread this message. And so all of these things work together. The, you know, the message resonates with the real world and they have the infrastructure to spread this message. And so, you know, it's mutually reinforcing. And one of the things I, one of the things I pick up in this um, is the importance. I'm not, I'm not saying it's important. I'm saying it was such a central part of even my experience in an evangelical church, which is years after some of these fundamental, uh, this, this formation uh, in terms of culture. One of the things I picked up was it seemed like, because my faith, I wasn't like a necessarily like a Christian family that totally attended church each week and kind of had that way. It was, I came mostly on, on my own. And, and, uh, but as I looked around at this Baptist church I was attending, I noticed things about you know homosexuality or abortion or whatever. And I think in an early age, I, I realized... Oh, these people, of which I was one, you know, came to faith, and but oh, these people seem to really know what they're against. And before I even know what what abortion was or something, I knew oh, they're really against some things. And when I read your book, then it helps me to see that I wasn't really off base there. That opponents were really, really important. The movement from beginning to now has a clear-eyed view of who is wrong. And who is wrong is mostly anybody who doesn't think like us. And you've got to, uh, just to read a quote, like, uh, again, toward the end of the book, 2.12, um, the faithful found something satisfying in anticipating the ultimate destruction of those who had long ignored them or mocked and derided their faith. They were offering a world, the world a clear choice, join them or face annihilation. For a person to reject the message fundamentalists were offering was to seal his or her fate. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know why. I guess I'm asking all of us here. I grew up in that, but they were, it, the strange thing was they were kind of friendly people, <laughs> you know, right. doing this. But but this was the thought that if you don't think like us, you're absolutely right. And so I don't know if anybody, if any of you have kind of a, what was it like to grow up in that in that way of thinking? Um, well, particularly as a as a woman, like you very easily learn to identify what your place is, like what you can do, what you can say. And also in one sense, um, w- like women who end up kind of rising to any level of leadership, they know how to game the system. Like they, they've learned how to work within right. their, their constructs and their confines that this has placed upon them. Um, and, and so I learned that at, at quite an early age, but there, there's part where. So you're saying you don't necessarily think a lot about how, well, they're saying everybody but them is wrong. That probably is the red flag that really, <laughs> I should I should kind of question this. It didn't it's really more you learn how to adjust. Was, yeah, you you yeah. learn how to adjust, and you you very much pick up on on what their perspectives of people right. are, and, and like in in reading your in your reading your. But book, you're opening Matt, your book right now, and you're going to turn to some of the. Uh, Some of the go- the great Matt, you, quotes you have in here. About, I just like about women. So go ahead. Yes. Well, there's this one which I actually read to my husband a few nights ago, um, as I was working through the book, and I was like, "Oh my goodness!" And so this is from Billy Graham, and he says, "The Bible," he explained, "teaches that the wife is to make the home as happy as possible, as near to heaven as possible." in case Billy Graham's biblical exposition went over the heads of those he hoped to reach. As a woman, it kind of does sometimes. He offered women some practical suggestions for serving their husbands. You can keep the house clean and in order. You can prepare his favorite dishes and have the meals on time. 
Consider too, this was my best, the best part, that any slovenliness and carelessness in your dress or personal appearance and cleanliness will naturally lessen the admiration and love your husband has for you. I, I, and then I apologize to my husband for my slovenly appearance. Um, <laughs> but there's part where... Like, Isn't there another Billy quote though? Do you have the Billy Sunday quote or no? Uh, I've got it somewhere. Not on women, it. but I have the one that kind of, like very early on in, in the book, like it, it's not just women that they, they wanted to make sure that they controlled, but like you see in the wake of World War I, their response to Germany, and he talks about how um, oh. if you turned hell upside down, he famously preached, I'll bet you'd find made in Germany stamped on the bottom <laughs> of it. And I literally at that point stopped yeah. reading the book and pulled my phone out and texted Todd. And I was like, oh uh, my goodness. Those of us who love <laughs> Karl Barth, be careful. The, um, so I found the Billy Sunday quote. Sorry, we, we need to ask Matt some questions. Yeah. We just love this book Sorry, so there's much. there's so many good quotes. This is Billy oh, Sunday. No, um, the average little frizzle-headed, fudge-eating, ragtime flapper who can't turn a batter cake without splattering up the kitchen, he preached, knows more about devilment than her grandmother did when she was 75 years old. Yes, sir, woman is the battleground of the universe. So, now, not to, but, so we'll skip ahead a little bit um, from Billy Sunday to Billy Graham, that Allison read that quote. You, um you're willing in this book to kind of mention some of these things about Billy Graham, who is a real hero even today of this movement. And there's two things yeah. that you do. You show, you show some of his domestic views, his, his views on the domestic life, right? That, and you also show that he was saying, at one point in your book, you have a quote that talks about how he needed to, quote, revise his figures. He's saying this. He said, I, I've right. revised my figures on when Jesus is coming back. And actually, in that case, he was pulling it closer. But, uh, yeah. but you, I mean, he is still kind of unassailable, right? Uh, how, how did you feel about that? Did you get any pushback? Yeah, I so, <laughs> yeah, so not so much from the book, but I took some of those same issues and I wrote an article assessing his legacy and I wrote it before he passed away, but knowing mm. that I would try to run it once kind of he died and people started talking about his legacy. So I think I wrote the first negative obituary. Um, mm. I had submitted it. Guardian was planning to run it. And so it ran like within a couple of hours of his death. Where, it, and the it, title it, was, Billy was on the wrong side of history. Oh, I'm sorry. Say it again. Cause and I cut you off. What was the title? Billy Graham was on the wrong side of history. And you can imagine running something with that title within an hour. <laughs> of, of, uh, you just went there. Well, we know, yeah, we know where you are now. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, um, so I, I feel a little guilty about that. And like right. I said, I didn't write, like I didn't hear he died and then wake up and start typing. Like I had written it right. months earlier, but knowing that, you know, he's, he was old, like it wasn't, he wasn't going to last forever. But anyway, I do, I do feel a little bad because in, in Graham's case, I think he generally meant well in that he was earnest, um, but that there, he had blind spots. And of course we all mm-hmm. have blind spots. And, and so one of the things I try to do in the book is to be honest with these folks in that, you know, in, in almost all cases, I think they truly believed what they preached. Like they weren't hucksters. They weren't just trying to dupe mm. the masses. They weren't just trying to enrich themselves. Mm. But nevertheless, you know, if you put them in their context, you can sort of see the things they didn't see and did see. And, and one of the other big ones is race that evangelicals have had a, had a really hard time acknowledging the racism in the movement. And that was one of the things that struck me back to the other Billy, to Billy Sunday, 
um, he was extraordinarily racist. Oh, I shouldn't say extraordinary. Like so many Americans were racist in his generation. Right. It but, wasn't extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To us, it was extraordinary, yeah, it, it, but in the day, yeah. It had been completely ignored um, in the literature on Billy Sunday. And part of why that was, was we just weren't looking in the right places. So I started reading black newspapers in cities where he would come and hold revivals. And suddenly you would see how differently African-Americans viewed him and the kinds of horrible things he said about African-Americans, but that weren't reported in traditional white sources. And so that was part of what I had to do in this book was to, to find different kinds of sources to kind of broaden my understanding of what was going on here. That is, I, I mean, it is so well researched, and 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 also we get the citations for for that research as well, which is which is really really helpful. Um, you have and you kind of cast Billy Graham. I don't mean cast as like a, a fictional figure, but the way that you place him in history, and I think this is true. You place him as someone who was a really key piece in this movement gaining respectability. That after World War II, they really faced this kind of like, okay, and after the Scopes Monkey trial earlier, but that you cast kind of like, and then along comes this this almost messianic yeah. figure who who grants this respectability to this movement. And it's interesting that we're in 2020 and still to this day, already uh, on an earlier episode of this uh, podcast, um, we mentioned something about Billy Graham that was, I suppose, less than flattering or something. And a number of uh, listeners uh, contacted, and it's so even in 2020, it's like he's unassailable. How dare you? Uh, this kind of idea right. where it, to people it actually becomes, well, maybe you don't believe the Christian faith then, if you yeah. and and that's a really interesting kind of uh, kind of exercise. Um, so moving to the history that we're currently living, um, it seems like forever ago now. But what are we today? June 11th. Yeah. So it was only June 10, June 1st, 10 days ago, the scene of Donald Trump standing in front of St. John's Episcopal Church, uh, grasping, a, grasping a Bible in the air, having walked through a path cleared by rubber bullets and tear gas. Um, how does the movement that you describe in your book, what does it have to do with that? Because it's interesting, as I see that, that photo op, I go, oh, I'm so glad I read your book, because you don't get to that uh, photo op without what you described it's not in a vacuum no how did you feel when you saw that photo or what yeah yeah so well in general i i was surprised that evangelicals rallied to trump as enthusiastically as they did um during the election in 2016 but just because of the personal moral stuff. I mean, they, you know, they put so much emphasis on individual morality um, and Trump doesn't even pretend to be a moral person as, as we all know. Um, But as I thought about it more deeply, you know, once I realized this is real, Trump's going to be the American president. This is here to stay. um, I began to think about the policies and why they would be so attracted to him. And there are things like, you know, especially his anti-internationalism, you know, we see it, just a few weeks ago with, you know, trying to withdraw the U.S. from the WHO. We see it from, you know, trying to undermine NATO, um, his criticisms of the United Nations. Like all of this comes out of evangelical apocalyptic theology. It they does. hate global organizations. They're, they're afraid the Antichrist is going to take power through one world government. And so Trump's isolationism is something yeah. that really resonates with them. Um, his, you know, his talk about not allowing foreigners in, which we all know is, you know, code for Muslims, also works because, and this is a shift that happens in evangelicals, but that beginning in World War II, they begin to put more emphasis on God judging nations in the end times, not just individuals. 
And so they believe they have an obligation to keep their nation as holy or as godly or as pure as possible. And oh. so keeping out Muslims is a way to do that. And so the, you know, that the anti-immigrant policy also resonates with evangelicals. Mm. Um, you know, and then the things that he's done to, you know, protect religious liberty abroad is how he would frame it, which is really to allow evangelicals to continue to do missionary work in various mm. countries. That also becomes essential to them because if Jesus is coming soon, you need to get as many people saved as possible, which means you've got to allow, you've got to get your missionaries into Muslim countries and other places. So for all those reasons, I think they supported him. I still, as I was watching the St. John's photo op, I still wondered if maybe that was the line, if he had gone too far, mm. that, you know, they're, they're not idiots. They're being used by Trump. In some ways, that was okay for evangelicals because they, they knew they were being used, but they were getting what they wanted. But I wonder, I still wonder if that was a step too far, if that was so blatantly, overtly, despicably um, dishonest in terms of just right. you know standing at the church, holding up a Bible, yeah. no prayer, no talk of forgiveness, no talk of reconciliation, and walking away. It was just so contrived that I think I think a lot of evangelicals are beginning to see through that. But you have, you have, if we go back to the totalizing idea, right? Putting everything through the frame of this apocalyptic way of seeing things and through the premillennial understanding, um, you could see how uh, in the evangelical mindset, you could take even something like that. So as you know, they cast Trump to some degree as, as like a, a character from in a sense outside the, the, proper realms of faith who comes and does anointed by God the the work of God which I suppose would mean getting Supreme Court justices and all these judges right. and fighting these things so you could look at even that sense of of Trump standing there and they could kind of I can see this I see this over and over again how quickly they're like oh that's terrible it, obviously he, he's he's never held a Bible before because nobody does it like that but then right away they kind of retreat into the right but he's doing all this for us uh, on behalf of of God, he's the most Christian, and I think they mean something slightly different in in even saying that he's the most Christian president. That's I'm getting texts. Sorry, he's the most Christian president we've had, right? And it's so it's so disheartening to kind of see. But I think in in kind of as we move towards the you know the latter part of our conversation here, um, I find your book really really hopeful, uh, and in fact, that's what's most important to me about it. Um, as someone who my faith matters to me, the uh, you have outlined for me that uh, I don't, and I feel like I haven't been for some time, but I don't have to be imprisoned in one particular way of thinking. And I find it hopeful because I think if other people could see this and know this, and it's not to hate the characters in this book. In fact, I think you're sympathetic. Like you it's write to sympathetically. Them. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah. you could see, you can't, you can't write about somebody like Amy Semple McPherson, right? Oh, she's uh, who, great in so tell many us, ways. Tell us about her. You wrote, oh you wrote a book yes. about her. Yeah, no, no, that's the thing. I mean, she's, she's fascinating. And I, um, you know, she, just had this incredible ministry in Los Angeles drawing on, on Hollywood tactics and trying to kind of make Christianity exciting and interesting and, and make it a show that could compete with the Hollywood films. But, but she's also a sympathetic character because she got, I think so powerful, um, but was also so lonely and, and like many celebrities are. And so it, it kind of her life unravels, but, but she also, one of the things that makes her different from many of these characters was she was more social justice minded. Right. So she did a lot during the great depression to help the poor and to, to make sure that her ministry really reached out to those. But, but I'm glad, um, Todd, that you found the book hopeful. I, 
I would say when I finished the book, I was hopeful. I think Trump has has hurt my hope. <laughs> Beating that, that out of you. <laughs> seeing what's happening yeah. now um, it makes me less less hopeful. But but I'm glad that it gave you some hope. Well, I think the hope is is something that is. I mean, I'll, I'll characterize it. So back to this idea that when when I was younger, seeing that opponents mattered, that you can define your faith by, in a sense, who you're against. And I know it's simplistic, but the way that I, in my kind of life or prayer or thought or consideration, make sense of somebody like Trump is that he is a genius at being a con man. And he came along and he saw maybe the same thing, that these people were driven more by their opponents than by the positive things of faith. And so he said, I will, I will fight those opponents for you. And they fell for it hook, line, and sinker. So my, when I say hopeful, it doesn't mean that I'm hopeful that kind of evangelicalism will find this bright new day. My hope is that that particular way of seeing the world, and I know people have, have written this obituary many times, so I, I'm not blind to that. But right. my hope is that uh, as Trump is gone, uh, this, this kind of fearful evangelicalism may be gone with him um, because there's no moral voice left there anymore for culture for anyone who's outside of the movement i think there's no moral voice left in these kinds of things so the hope is not um without its without its edges right but but the book made me hopeful because you describe something so well that i think if people read this even listen to this this podcast but certainly if they read this book they'll be like that oh i was told i had to believe this but this is helping me see uh where it comes from Mm -hmm. so uh Alison, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, that was certainly my experience growing up was, like, I, I grew up in a very evangelical vacuum. Like, I, I went to a private evangelical Christian school. I went to a Baptist church. Like, my, my, my life was this. And I literally did not know until I got out of it what it was. And so there's yeah. part where your book has given me so much context and has given so, like, it has created so many connections for me that I can go, oh, I can see where this progressed and I can see why they harped on these things. And I found it fascinating because there was so much where when you're in that vacuum, probably as intensely as I was in many ways, you, you don't see and you're not encouraged to see. <laughs> like that's that's one of the biggest things is yeah, like, the, you're yeah. not encouraged to, to think you're like in that sense, particularly not to be critical and and so I I was very in, intrigued and loved your I don't, book. I don't think it's because you editorialized it out, but one of the things that you don't find in this book is a lot of these leaders in the movement saying, "Well, this 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 this," but I might not be right. <laughs> it, it no, never, there's very little of that. Uh, who yeah. are you, do you? You must feel like you got to know some of these people as you were researching this. Who are your favorite yeah, characters? I really did. Um, I felt pretty sympathetic to, to almost all of them. Actually, I'll start with the negative. I'll, I'll mm. dodge your question. The only two people in the entire book I don't like mm. were J. Howard Pugh, who was a corporate oil man, um, who was the one who funded Billy Graham in the rise of the magazine Christianity Today, wow. because it was clear that he had no theological convictions, that he had political convictions. He was a libertarian who wanted the government to stop regulating his business. And he realized that by funneling all this money into evangelicalism that that could help his, his corporate growth. Um, and so, so, I mean, again, he's, he's one of the primary sponsors of, of Billy Graham's work. And that, that bothered me because I think Billy Graham got used and I don't think Billy Graham knew, knew he was being used. Mm-hmm. The other huckster, and I don't know if you guys read this, but um, 
the book in the 1970s, The Late Great Planet Earth oh, yeah, by yeah. Hal Lindsey. You've got a great cover yeah. photo of it in there. Yeah. Yeah, that book, um, I mean, everything I've read of and about Lindsay, and I've had a very minimal interaction with him over email, I, I, I think he's a huckster. I, I think yeah. he's a fraud. I think he's, he's figured out something that can sell books and make him money. And that's mm-hmm. that. But, but everybody else in the book, the other probably 100 characters, mm-hmm. I think were well-meaning, earnest Christian people trying to do the right thing, but they were shaped, just as Allison was saying, just as I was growing up by this worldview that sees the world as this black and white, good and evil, right and wrong, zero-sum game where either you're part of the elect, part you're going to be saved, or you're a tool of the Antichrist. And mm-hmm. There's just no in-between. Oh, my goodness. The, so I want to do a kind of an imaginative exercise as we end, and if you have more questions or something, uh, others, that's great. So as I say, I was a pastor for 25 years and do build this little uh, you know, meeting in the foyer after the service or something, the, the, what used to be the shaking of hands, not anymore. So someone from my church is talking about how terrible the world is. They maybe talk about the rapture or about the imminent return of Jesus, about how other religions are so terrible, maybe about, in an American context, how Democrats are godless. How could I use what I've read in your book to help that person see that what they believe is not the only way to understand Christian faith? So this, because what I'm trying to describe is I'm so sympathetic to people like this. I actually can think of actual people and names, and I think so-and-so may have been even so much better if they weren't weighed down by this stuff. Just give us a thought. Yeah, the way I've dealt with it is, and this is why I became a historian, is just when you, you know, when you look at 2,000 years of church history, you realize that this is a pretty small movement in the overall kind of trajectory in that it comes out of a very particular historical context, which is really 19th century England, Ireland, United States. Mm-hmm. So you know, you, one easy way to do this is to ask them where the rapture is in the Bible. And most people don't realize the word rapture doesn't appear in the Bible. And and nobody talked about the rapture or thought of the rapture until the mid 19th century. And so once you begin to think about, you know, what are these cultural ideas that we sort of superimpose onto the Bible that can then open up the conversation for, well, what else do we superimpose on the Bible? And how else are we reading it through our own position and our own time and our own place? And, and then I think you can begin to show that, you know, that, that the things that, early Christians would have believed were so different from what 20th century American, Canadian, North American Christians would believe. And then you can start talking about, well, you know, what did those early church Christians believe? What do we believe today? What's in common? What's different? And then that becomes a way to, um, I think, to help them think through some of their presuppositions that ultimately Mm -hmm. gets them probably to the, to where you want to get them. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a hope. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't always know. I like, and they're okay without doing that to a large degree, right? Like it's it's okay if they don't, if it's going to cost too much or hurt them too much or something. By the way, uh, the church that I was working at, Allison as well, and Rick was there, our producer who's here. Um, for, I was there for 25 years, was at Plymouth Brethren Church. And so, uh, oh. you know, John Nelson Darby, and the, you don't you don't identify so much P- Plymouth Brethrenism in, in the book, but you do speak about Darby, who to a large degree if my understanding is correct, we owe some of the central idea of the rapture to people like John Nelson. Absolutely. And yeah. That you, so in the dispensationalism and the, so I'm, I was speaking with people this week who, you know, 10 years older than me who were going to prophecy conferences, their whole growing up, right. As a child. And as, right. so the very things that you, that you mentioned in here, so it's not that far away. And uh, so no. it's somehow for, for us, it's that, or 
for me, but I know us mm-hmm. as well. It's that how to remain kind of sympathetic and even empathetic in, in cases of these people, but hoping for something for something better. And maybe it's a long road, or maybe there are turns like right now where things are kind of collapsing. And uh, as we've seen even in your book, after things collapse, there can be a better rebuilding. And so, you know, there must be that evangelicalism, maybe I'm just being too optimistic here, will face some kind of reckoning after Donald Trump. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I see it going either way. I think, I think Trump is going to cause a reckoning for the evangelical leaders, for the, the religious right, the political activism. I'm not sure if it's going to undermine the apocalypticism though, because uh, with COVID and with, um, you know, with the things that are going on now globally, you know, when we're talking about tracking the virus, I mean, I saw someone this week talking about, you know, that's going to be a tool for the antichrist. You know, are you serious? You know, he's wow. going to take the mark and he's not. Um, that I think, I think the, Conditions right now are so bad that that's going to fuel more apocalyptic thinking. All right, I, people, yeah, people aren't going to see paradise here, but I, I could see uh, why you would think that. And you must get some of these people coming to you now that uh, now that the you know you've opened this conversation. Uh, tell us about what you're doing now, what you're working on now, and might not be related to this at all. But what what matters to you? Yeah. No, so I published a book um, just this fall called Double Crossed. Um, which I just, I loved the the research. It was about four missionaries who became spies for the United States during World War II. Um, oh, that sounds fascinating. Were, yeah, one was a fundamentalist. The other three were more mainline. Um, one was placed in Germany. One was in China. One was in North Africa. And one was in England. So I'm able to tell the story of World War II through the lens of these four missionaries who become spies. And they're all wrestling with the moral ambiguity of lying, deceiving, killing, um, the kinds of things that you have to do as a spy, but they believed it was for the greater good, that this was the only way to save the church was to stop Hitler and to stop the Japanese. And so, so that was super fun. Um, and then now I've just gotten started on a big history of American Christianity to try to explain really? why Americans are so Christian and how Christianity has shaped the United States. So that's going to be a while. That'll be a while. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and you teach. And I teach, yeah, and I'm actually chairing the history department at Washington State University, which means dealing with the transition online and all the craziness Ooh, that's been going on. You're a on. little busy then. Well, <laughs> we, sure, we sure appreciate your <laughs> thank time. Thank you, then. thank We're you. We're going to go buy Double Crossed. Oh, my I goodness. I guarantee that you that. Sounds like a movie. Like, we have more books so to read, and we have another topic to talk about. Matt, thank you so much. We are we're more appreciative of your time than we can let you know here. Yes, thank you, um, thank you. What we think uh, this, is, this is an important thing that we're doing. We've got two other parts in this, in this series. Um, next week we're speaking with um, Catherine Stewart about religious nationalism. I don't know if you've seen that Great. book, Matt, but you should read it. Yep. Um, what's it called? I've read it. Power the Worshippers. Power Worshippers. Yeah. And then uh, a couple yep. weeks from now we're talking to um, Willie James Jennings on Christianity and white supremacy. So thanks for starting us off. You've done it so uh, so well. We're yeah. really really grateful. All the best in your work. We look forward to the History of Christianity book in however many years. So <laughs> thanks so much. Thank you guys. Bye, so everybody. Much. This was fun. Episode two in this special series will be released next Friday. We speak with Catherine Stewart, author of the new book, The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. (laughs) 